finding product market fit is not a straight line. You don't just go from zero to point one to point two. It's a rocky road and you pivot and you alternate. And I think when I say like point five, I'm just suggesting the idea that entrepreneurs do somewhat get a sense that the thing is going to work and going to succeed. And you have a testing ground to test maybe a thousand customers. And if those thousand customers are happy, they're coming back, your churn rate's low, you're starting to see the beginning signs of a successful startup. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Andrew Amon, CEO of 923 Venture Studio. Andrew graduated from the University of Connecticut with a BS in mechanical engineering and took his first job as a nuclear submarine engineer. After a few years and a move to Boston, Andrew found that entrepreneurship was his real passion. And after meeting his co-founder at an entrepreneurial meetup, they decided to start a company. For more than a decade, Andrew and his partner have helped launch countless ventures for clients and emerging companies and turned their business into one of the fastest growing private companies in America, having been on the Inc. 5000 list for the past two years. Today, Andrew and I are talking about what it means to be a startup studio, how to recognize opportunities, how they build and manage a remote workforce, and how you can learn from the failures of others. I'm excited to talk with Andrew today, and I hope you enjoy his story as much as I have. Andrew, thank you for joining me on The Impactor. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I was, uh, I was intrigued when I started looking at your company which is called 923 Venture Studio. That's so great. before we kind of get into a little bit about you and what you've been doing and, and the company uh, background, tell us, uh, tell us what 923 Venture Studio is all about and where did that name come from? Sure. Yeah, so 923 is a web and mobile agency. Uh, we call ourselves a startup studio now because we have transitioned from being a consultant or an agency for, for larger clients. We've transitioned into the startup studio model, which builds products for both entrepreneurs uh, with funded startups and also the tech brands. Built about 50 client projects over the course of the last 11 years. We also have 14 startups that we've developed either in-house or with partners or with other people, which is what makes us a startup studio. Um, we have a playbook now because we've built so many of these startups you know, almost from scratch with partners or other people. We have figured out a playbook of how to do marketing, how to do sales, how to get your product in front of people, and how to find product market fit. So we're really revolutionizing the idea of an, what we call an agency-funded startup studio. Because we use our profits to fund startups and partner with people, we're at the, the precipice of, of finding this new market of building products over and over again. Now, the company itself, we founded in 2011. We were originally called Inigo. It was a uh, digital business card that people would use when they went out to events. And we built that for five years, you know, with the team that we currently have today. Uh, and after the fifth year, we sold that company. And when we sold it, we sold the assets, but we kept the team. And so when we sold it, Pablo and I still had our daytime jobs. I was working as a nuclear submarine submarine engineer, and Pablo was working at a, a Profitech, which is like a, a data warehouse analysis company. 
And those we were doing at the, <laughs> this is where I have to cut and go back. So already getting to the point, I had stumbled and then I just kept stumbling. That's <laughs> so, okay. So no we'll cut wave. I'll go back only like a minute here. Um, so 923 Venture Studio was founded. The name was created from myself and my co-founder. His name is Pavel. We've been working on this company for about 11 years. And we uh, originally, we had a, a product called Inigo. And it was a digital business card app. Over the course of five years, we were working two jobs. One, our daytime job. I was a nuclear submarine engineer. And Pavel was working at Profitect. And so at night, we'd be working on this Inigo product from 9 p.m. till 3 a.m. So when we finally sold it in 2016, we were trying. We had to come up with a name because we sold the assets and not the team. And when we tried to figure out what to be as a company and what to call ourselves, we couldn't help but think of our roots. And so that's why we called ourselves from nine to three, which is nine to three. I love that. So, so I wondered about, you know, nine to five is what <laughs> the typical job used to be. But for the entrepreneur who's starting a company, uh, while they have to pay for <laughs> the rent and the food. And, and I've been there, done that. Nine to three is perfect. And uh, yeah. it's a, so it's a great name. I love that. So there's Thank a you. lot that um, there's a lot that you talked about that I'd like to dig into. So you are now a startup, uh, an agency funded startup studio. That's correct. Now you're you're um, you're based in Boston. So, uh, but you, you're a first, uh, a remote first company, which I want to get into later. But let, talk to me a little bit about um, about the evolution of the company uh, before we dive into a few other things about your background, because I was really interested. You're a nuclear submarine engineer, so that right. that's got to be an interesting background as well. But um, when you talk about an agency-funded startup studio, I know uh, some startup studios um, actually develop ideas and and then bring in people to compete to uh, you know develop concepts for them. Um, I've had some folks on my podcast that have been that had that kind of style, and then others provide funding for people who come in with what what you know what maybe a team. Uh, with the agent, with your agency, would find as being um, worth pursuing. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how that works. Sure. And you're touching on what a traditional startup studio. You know, the term was coined back when IDEO created their startup studio, and IDEO really revolutionized the idea of being product builders and bringing products to market. They also did have funding and eventually venture-backed uh, resources to take a lot of shots. Right. And one of the bigger ones today, um, there's some venture capital backed startup studios like Atomic. They get hundreds of millions, or maybe not hundreds of millions, but they get millions and millions of, of venture capital dollars to go invest in a number of products that they think they can bring to market. And so the numbers work out, you know, let's say they start with 200 ideas. They might fund, you know, 20 or 30 of them with CEOs that they install and they put a team around it and they all work in one big office. And they're trying to bring to market a startup from scratch and they provide funding, they provide the office, they provide the team, different advisors will be helping out and you're, you're cross-referencing resources to build these startups. Now, uh, like Atomic has a few public companies, right? And so they're taking big shots with big money and they end up getting a few companies going public. It's a great model and it has long opportunities. It's a newer concept. And I do think that these, these models are gonna be very successful. The difference that we provide is we're self-funded. We don't have the opportunity to take, you know, million dollar shots on a company that 
it's going to go to zero. We want our companies to be profitable. We want them to sustain you know, the long run. And we're really building our products so that they get utilized by clients on day one to solve a specific technology problem, right? We don't want to fall into the trap of just you know, working like on debt like Uber did for a long time and then trying to find product market fit, even though you're utilizing the debt to help you find that product market fit. We really want our clients to launch their product and find profitability and revenue from the products we build. Because we're self-funded, we don't, we can't take 10, 20, 30 shots. We can only take one. So we're very picky on the, the people we work with. And when we partner with somebody, we're trying to build a product that really, it's not like zero to one, it's like 0.5 to one. They have the product market fit, and now we're trying to bring it to market with them. So uh, so in, in some ways, so you started out developing mobile apps and web and, and mobile apps for enterprise, like for, for businesses that wanted to develop, and you still do that. Yes. But but now what you're doing is really providing that same service to somebody that might come in and say and, and be able to pitch you on their concept. But they don't yet have that uh, technology built out. Would that be correct? Would that be yeah, correct? Well, it? Yes. And that's where the transformation has happened. We used to start our own companies in-house and then try to find the CEO. It's much like an incubator would. And what you're exactly suggesting is we're now interested in finding entrepreneurs that are in a space in which they have core IP. And that core IP is building the, the technical know-how to do the core infrastructure of what their product is. You know, if they're a realty company, maybe there's a certain way they're trying to find houses that go on the market, right? If they're a hardware company or manufacturing line, maybe it's their supply chain, like how they manage the supply chain. What they necessarily are finding they don't need to build alongside is the mobile team. They don't need to curate an engineering manager that knows just mobile, then they don't need to hire the engineers that know mobile. They are us to run their mobile team. And where that provides incredible advantages is mobile is very cynical. It, it you, you build the app, you release it, and then you wait for customer feedback and maybe six months go by and you release the next app, right? And so that waveform of releases doesn't require you to hire a full-time team. And the agency is perfect for that. We already have a culture. We already have a team. We've built in the industry before, and we can solve that specific problem using known resources that have solved somewhat similar problems before. And then we can go launch that product alongside our partners. Once the app is released, they can you know, tone down a little bit, let us go back to some other projects. And then when they need us again, ramp back up. And that model allows them to keep their core IP while utilizing us, which is a team that we've curated that knows their problem. So uh, you know that I work with entrepreneurs a lot as an yep. educator and also, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs in, from a consulting perspective. So for the, for people who are interested in taking advantage of this kind of a opportunity, uh, you know, it, it sounds really, I mean, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me, especially in today's marketplace, because even if you wanted to hire some of these technical people that you already have, it's hard to get them right. <laughs> and it's hard to afford them. I mean, even if you can afford them, it's hard to find them. So what's that relationship look like? You know, say I'm an entrepreneur, I come in and and I, you know, pitch you, you or your team and, and you decide that that what I'm interested in doing has merit. Do Is there a shared ownership? Is that um, you know, work for fee. How does that work? I know it might be a little different. Uh, and how does that differ for the startup and the entrepreneur than maybe enterprise? Yeah. So, and again, it's been an evolution for us as well as we learn the different bouts of 
being an equity partner, being a revenue shared partner, or just being an agency, being being a consultant, right? And what we do now is when somebody comes to us, especially with a great idea, they're still required to pay close to full price, right? We still have a a team that's really good at what they do. And we build that product regardless of what the discount is going to be. If we believe in the idea, we will invest in that idea as well. And so that does provide a little bit of a discount to the entrepreneur. It also shows that we believe in that entrepreneur. It shows that we're partners, that we're along for the ride with them. So that additional investment, you know, it does provide a discount on the development. If you look at it like that, it sometimes gives us a a play inside the equity or the revenue that they would like to share. Um, But more importantly, it aligns our interests that this product we're going to build has a second year and a third year that we're going to be working together on. And by us investing in it, you know, whether it's just a cash investment, it's showing that we really believe in the future of this product and we want to be involved with it for a, a long time coming. Yeah, that that's really great. Do you work because you've got some great universities, obviously, in your back door, but do you work with universities to, for deal flow? Uh, because it seems like that would be a great uh, resource. <laughs> I would love if I had better deal flow through universities. It's a, it's a challenging balance between how much money they typically have. You know, most of our apps start at about $150,000. And so having that as a testing ground is very difficult for a university-sponsored program. Uh, to to see if the app works, $150,000 is sometimes beyond, even if they have, you know, grants or some money, it doesn't approach that value and they're paying themselves with the grants. So deal flow, and especially younger entrepreneurs, it's a difficult model, I believe, because they need to get that success, that product market fit to get the revenue, to see the value of getting a world-class app. They're almost looking for like a no-code solution to test the market. We're really the, the agency that builds, like I said, from 0.5 to 1. You have product market fit. You know exactly what needs to be built. Now you're going to try to get to like 10,000 customers in the next six months. Our apps will be scalable. They'll be world-class. They'll be designed top-notch. Like We're really the polishing agency that develops an application that you can show to the world and really be proud of. Yeah. So, so for the, yeah. And, and uh, it makes a whole lot of sense. So the idea is that maybe universities may still have contact with some of these uh, entrepreneurs that have managed to, uh, you know, validate their market through their low code version and they're ready. And maybe even they have an investor. Would you work with them if they had an external investor or is that some, I mean, I assume that yes. would work. Yeah. So. Yes. What, what we're finding, because it's been, you know, we've evolved as well. We used to fund our own startups. We used to play those games of like, hey, let's go 50-50 on the risk, right? We played those games and we've just evolved with our team and our experience. And so now when an entrepreneur does reach the status that you're saying is they're using venture backing to support the debt or support the product, we're finding that venture, venture capitalists are very interested in us because they can build the core IP with like a few set of engineers. Uh, those engineers, or they can hire a salesperson to do the marketing while they hire us to do the mobile app or some side product that is not core technology, but still is required for them to get to market. And so instead of hiring a team, they can hire us as an agency to build that specific core product. And that's where I think the venture capitalist and the entrepreneur, like you're saying, from a university does start to get excited because they don't have to think about building out four engineering teams. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell me, so you've got to be, you and your team have, have uh, developed some skills around recognizing opportunities. And I'll back up later and talk to you a little bit about your opportunity for nine to three 
venture studio when you first got started. But what are the if if you had to list the top three criteria you look for um, in a startup that you're going to work for at work with? Now you said they are already at point five. Yes. So um, you know what 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 does that mean to you? Like what what does it mean to be from zero to point five? What are the criteria? Yeah, and zero to one is really the concept of finding product market fit, right? It means you've hit the the precipice of like you've started from nothing and now you have a machine that you just need to operate that machine. And I think Peter Thiel even goes so long as saying like the factory is built and now it's just like adding fire, like adding product to it and trying to get more output, right? You're playing a different game at that point. Um, but finding product market fit is not a straight line. You don't just go from zero to point one to point two, right? it's a rocky road and you pivot and you alternate. And I think when I say like 0.5, I'm just suggesting the idea that entrepreneurs do somewhat get a sense that the thing is going to work and going to succeed. And you have a testing ground to test maybe a thousand customers. And if those thousand customers are happy, they're coming back, your churn rate's low, you're starting to see the beginning signs of a successful startup. And once you start hitting that point, now it's the matter of improving the product making sure that the product is serving the correct need of that, that entrepreneur or that founder or whatever he's trying to produce, and then doubling down on it, right? You don't necessarily need product at the very beginning. You need a sales and marketing channel to ensure that enough customers can find out about you. But once that's happening, the product can support that, that knowledge of, hey, I have a problem. How This problem is being solved by this piece of technology. This piece of technology needs to be able to scale to a million people, say, now I need to double down on this part before I go to the full product market fit. And then at full product market fit, you can just go to the scaling mode. So demonstrated, demonstrated market acceptance, a revenue stream. What do you look for in the entrepreneur? Is there anything uh, there in, that you look for? Yeah, we, um, we love, like Gary Vaynerchuk says about the jockey, you know, you pick the jockey, not the product. The uh, entrepreneur that we're looking for usually has had success in the past, usually has gone through the, you know, the rigmarole of like building a startup, having a lot of failures, knowing what happened like to those failures, learning from them, and really being battle tested for their next startup. And the reason why we think that's important is because it's very hard to go from zero to one on your first try. And a lot of successful founders, you know, like Rand Fishkin and the guys that we read about, it's their fourth or fifth product, right? They started as an agency like we did. They tried a bunch of things, you know, it was Moz specifically. He wanted to figure out how to do this marketplace, but it took him a while to find exactly what that product was going to do to service the people in his industry, right? And so once you work with second, third time entrepreneurs, they know what not to do and they know how not to fail and they just know a quicker path to success. Yeah. So we're looking for those entrepreneurs that have been battle tested, that have been through the rings before, and can just tell us like, I have point A, I need to get to point B in, in one year, you're going to do this, 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 and this, but be a partner of mine. Tell me where you see pushback. Tell me where you see the customers falling through the funnel. How can this app be 1% better, right? Like we're really the technology partner that knows how to create more revenue from building applications. And they're the sales and marketing that are selling the idea. We're just a vehicle to get them to their, their main goal. Yeah, that that's great. So let's let's back up just a little bit. Um, you are a nuclear 
submarine engineer, right? Uh, yep. And your partner, was your partner an engineer too? You said- but He's I a software know. engineer. A software through engineer. And through. Yep. Okay. So how did you, uh, how did you reach this point? Um, you know, I'm sure it was also, there was also, there's also an interesting story about how you got here. Yeah. So Pablo and I met in 2011 and, you know, I had, I've been working for nuclear submarines since about 2008. Um, I came out of school and it was my first job. And so right around 2011, 2012, I moved to Boston. And at that time, you know, I knew I wanted to stay in, in engineering, but apps were just kind of becoming the new thing. And I was going to startups in Boston. Boston is a hub for entrepreneurship. And after you know, going around for a while, I realized that even though I was trained as a mechanical engineer, my heart and soul was really with technology. You know, even as a kid, I had fiddled with, you know, all the tablets and phones and customized everything, uh, phone that I had, you know, you can see in the background, if you're on YouTube, you can see I have a whole set of all my old phones that I used to customize. Um, but the apps that were coming out, they needed people to really think about long-term solutions because we were like, what we were doing as entrepreneurs is replacing how people used other pieces of technology. Like there was language translators at that time. You go to another country, you have a device that translates, there's calculators, right? Journaling, books, calendar entries. All those had to be incorporated into the iPhone. And I think Pablo and I realized there's a massive opportunity to use our experience and you know our mechanical engineering mindset of how supply chains work and how processes can be improved towards the applications. And so I was in Boston trying to figure out my next you know, startup that I wanted to create because I knew I wanted to create one and business cards was just a problem that needed to be solved. And so I was passing out pamphlets or trying to figure out who I can find as a developer to help me with this. And I met Pavel and it was a match made in heaven. I mean, we clicked right away. We started building together. And, you know, for five years, I think him and I spent every night together from nine to three a.m. just working on this product. And so we hit our first success in 2016 and we were just having so much fun. We just kept building, building, building. And it's come to what it is today. You know, we got two Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America. And that entire process has come from the fact that Pavel and I just kind of both wanted to be an entrepreneur, both wanted to leave our current jobs and, you know, curate what we have today. Yeah, it's a great story. And I, I heard a lot more things in there because a lot of it's about timing yes. and uh, being able to recognize that. And I talked to my students a lot about that, but also about networking uh, because you were going to the startups and meeting people like your business partner and able to find those connections. So lots of really good advice in there, I think, for people who are looking for opportunities. So um, when we you talked just a little bit early or we talked a little bit earlier about how you built your company and it started with the two of you. And um, I think you, like most people who are running a company would, would agree that it's it's often all about people. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your strategy with finding talent because the kind of people you're looking for are highly skilled and, um, and highly desirable employees. And it, it, as we talk right now from a timing perspective, it's really hard to find employees of all types right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just curious, to, uh, you know, uh, and you're also a remote first company, you, you yes. called it. So I guess from day one, you started your company with remote workers. So um, let's talk a little bit about that and, and your strategies around people. Um, and then, and, and um, you know, I, I'm 
curious about whether you hire talent or whether you subcontract talent or whether you do a little of both. And so if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So when we were building the app, you know, there's, I think our claim to fame is we spent about $50,000 in total prior to the, to selling the application in five years. Uh, And that was just resources that we used. We had to contract out the iPhone app and there was minor development resources there uh, because Pavel took the brunt of it, you know, developing and I took a lot of the sales and marketing. But once we turned this into an agency and we were building for other people, the most important aspect of any consulting agency are the people. And we realized that earlier on. So with the first customers that we had, you know, we knew the countries we wanted to go to and we knew which countries created the right talent. Uh, my co-founders from Israel. So we started right in Israel and we moved quickly to Eastern Europe uh, just because of the pricing and just because of the connections we had. And so from that transition, we found uh, you know, agencies that provide developers, just like you said, it's subcontracting. So earlier on, that's what we were doing to build our agency is, is subcontracting and being that right American company that knew how to source developers. You know, this was 2016, 2017. It was well needed at that time to get a different revenue. Like if you wanted to have a larger margin on your development resources, um, hiring in Eastern Europe was the way to do that or India or, you know, Bangladesh. There's, there's a bunch of different locations you could do that. As we moved from 2016 to 2019, we started ramping up the idea of direct contractors, people that work directly for us. But to do that, we couldn't just hire, we couldn't you know, travel to a specific country and then do interviews. We had to hire and have a process to hire directly. What we found the best way to do it was to have the HR manager start in that country and resource from there. And why we did that was because there's so many things in each country that you just don't know about unless you're part of the culture and part of the country. Like in Ukraine, there's a service called DAO, which is like our LinkedIn. So most of the Americans would be trying to promote developers in the Ukraine on, on LinkedIn, when in reality, they're using a system called, you know, Jimmy. And that process is, is difficult to understand unless you're actually in the country. So now what we've done is, you know, our HR manager is living in a specific country. When we had to migrate to another country to hire, we started looking for HR managers in that country. Right. And we really look for the concept of finding a person that can help us source direct contractors so that we really get that first touch basis of, you know, what's the best resources? What are the best prices? Like, what should we be offering? The benefits become super important. Are the benefits different in one country and another? What's the average of benefits for each of these countries so we can ensure that we're competitive? All of that plays into the factor. And I really think it comes down to actually having a person in that country that we trust doing the hiring. Yeah. So you actually, so you, 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 when you decide you're going to move into a region or a country, you actually hire someone there as an HR director for that group um, to help you find the right people. Do you keep them on as long as you have those people or do you move on to, to, you know, uh, in other words, I guess, do you have a number of HR directors around the the world or do you send your HR director uh, to different places to live? How does that work logistically? Yeah. So, our HR director is great. She is currently in the Ukraine. And so that has provided us, you know, a lot of the old Soviet Union uh, countries were able to be sourced from that original HR because she understands not just Ukraine, but those outlying countries as well. Um, when we moved into Armenia and also Poland, um, we did slowly find the HR manager, the HR director there. Uh, and that was our our process to trying to migrate from one country to the other. Instead of just starting to hire, we wanted to find somebody that knew the area first. 
So that has been our process and that will continue to be our process as we decide to go from country. That's a really unique uh, perspective, but makes so much sense. And I'm assuming you started in Israel, you said, so you probably had an advantage there uh, with your partner. So that was probably a, a big help. But you mentioned Ukraine and, um, you know, it must be a difficult time uh, right now for you. And I think I read somewhere that you had about 25 of your team members there. So talk to us about, you know, how the, the war there impacted your company and, and what you've done to, to manage that process. Sure. So in February 24th, you know, Russia attacked Ukraine. We had 25 individuals that were living in the country at the time of the attack. Uh, and immediately our first mindset was to keep them safe. Uh, we woke up that morning while well, we were still uh, awake. It was 11 p.m. our time. It was about 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Ukraine time. And when we woke up to this, we started direct messaging the individuals that were living in the country. And we found the unfortunate news that they had to leave their houses, especially if they lived in the cities. And they were trying to either connect with their parents or their loved ones and or their parents were trying to come to them. But the majority of them were trying to get out of the specific cities they were in. because Those seemed to be the targets earlier on. Our team started communicating, you know, it's on Telegram. We also communicated in the direct messages. But our goal was to you know, find safe spots for each of the people to live or, or to be somewhat away from where the danger was. Um, and we couldn't do much from where we were in America. So we relied on their knowledge and their families and, and what they were telling us. But we promised to pay them. We promised that they can get through this, uh, you know, just focus on their safety first. So that was kind of the first week or so. And as a consulting agency, you have to commit hours to the projects that you're building, right? That's why people hire us. So we realized that earlier on and when we transitioned away from, not away from, like we transitioned from understanding that they're safe to trying to figure out how to fulfill the client projects. We did exactly what we were, you were talking about is we went to Poland. We had an HR you know, representative there that we were working with and we hired developers that we trusted already. We didn't have to hire from the street. We already had the relationships in place. We already had the people in Poland to help us. And every CEO that we talked to in Poland was just phenomenally helpful of all the relationships that, that I built up over the year with the other CEOs. They offered housing, they offered support, they offered visas. I mean, it was just incredible experience to watch the humanity of, we all know who was wrong in the situation, Russia being wrong, and who can we help and how can we help the Ukrainians? So we all kind of banded together and we tried to figure out how to keep them safe and how to give them a place to live. Um, some of them moved to Lviv, which is uh, on the Western part of Ukraine, um, but others, you know, tried to leave the country and then you know, 18 to 60 year old men were not allowed to leave. So the females didn't want to separate from them either. Uh, and so this whole experience, you know, as a company, we increased our cost substantially in a few weeks. And then we had to increase our revenue to support the new costs, right? Because we promised to pay them, we promised to support them. And so in four weeks, we doubled our revenue. And, you know, that was just me going out in the sales calls, uh, just promising people that will still deliver work. We still have a great team. And, you know, after about a week, the most amazing thing happened is without us asking the developers and the project managers and the QA, they started putting hours back to the company to support the clients. So in that March month, you know, we had surpassed any hours that we had ever done for any of our clients because we were worried about our team. So we hired extra people on each project and they surpassed, you know, every client project we had. And then doubling revenue was just a necessity to support the whole infrastructure that we had just built. So that, that's been our reality since March, since February 24th. 
Yeah, that's a great story. You know, so many times a crisis brings out the best in people and in a situation. I mean, it's very painful to go through, but but kudos to you. It sounds like you you all did a great job uh, with handling that. You know, you've got these remote workers all around the world, and today companies are all trying to figure out how to manage remote uh, remote workforce. You started that way, so it's part of your culture. But if you had to give some advice for um, you know a corporate manager or for an entrepreneur who's got a, a, who's not been used to to working that way. And they've got a team and and they've got workers who want that. Um, do you have do you have some advice um, you know for for companies to be thinking about uh, to how to manage a, a, a remote workforce better? Yeah, and there's there's two answers to that. The first one is don't, right? Like people like us have survived and created a culture around being remote, which means that if you're an entrepreneur in America thinking, I am happy hiring remote workers. I go out finding an HR manager, then finding all the remote workers and interviewing them from all different countries, then figuring out the compliance issues of each of the countries that you're trying to interview, and then pigeonholing yourself to a specific country, doubling down on that country, realizing it's a mistake because of X, Y, and Z. Like there's so much research into each country's compliance that you need a specific person. So if you're early on in a company, hiring an agency that has already done this still reduces your cost because you're not hiring an American at $175 an hour. You're hiring an agency at like $80 to $100 an hour like us, right? And then from there, it snowballs into this concept of we can build the team, but we can also scale with you, right? We can balance as you don't need the services anymore, as opposed to hiring a remote worker for a year and being required to pay them regardless. So that's kind of the first answer. And then the second answer is like, if you do want to start a remote company, the first and foremost thing that you have to do is set up proper communication channels that require you to, to work asynchronously. And what I mean by that is Slack and Zoom and Loom and anything else that ends in Oom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all of these products are now created for this asynchronous work. And the channels that are in are all spoken English. You know, we communicate with each other and we're very respectful. We say please and thank you. We understand that people could be on vacation, they could be with a family, they could be at dinner. The time zones are so out of whack that you can't expect that there's going to be immediate responses. But there are those core hours that the entire company, for us, it's about 8 a.m. till noon, where we all know that we're somewhat working. Outside of that, it's, you know, thank you for jumping back on real quick, or can you please help me, you know, when you got a minute. And as the people have their mobile phones and their computers, that sense of communication that I could be anywhere in the world. I could be at my desk, I could be at dinner, I could be with friends, but I'm still at least knowledgeable enough to just say, hey, I'll get to this tomorrow. I hear you, I read it, I understand. That type of communication really allows us to progress faster than I think any in-office company that I've ever worked in. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to your DNA, right? Nine to three, <laughs> yeah. you know, an acceptance of that, that ability to work anytime, anywhere. And amazingly, a lot of companies find more productivity depending on on what they're doing. Do you, do you ever have um, employees that would like to get together and want to be with each other? Yeah. And and do you facilitate that as a company? Yeah, so uh, right before the war started, uh, the entire team that was in Ukraine had gotten together for a dinner. Um, unfortunately, the founders and people from America were unable to join them at that time. And we, had, we were planning a trip for March of that current year uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And then when the war hit, we we didn't. And we are going to get back into that. You know, and 
I think our team has grown so fast. You know, as I mentioned, we've been on the Inc. 5000 twice now. We were a smaller team before and we were scattered more. Now we're starting to get these little centralized hubs where people are working together in the same cities, in the same time zones. And so doing that, that trip together and seeing each other in person was important. And for those Ukrainians that got together before the war, I can't underestimate how massive that was as people were moving around the country in the time of war, because I do know some of our coworkers started living together, supported each other, and it probably stemmed from them meeting, you know, at least once face to face. Yeah. Kind of interestingly, um, we're, we have visitors right now uh, uh, staying here in Tampa in, in a condo that we have who's, uh, they're Ukrainian, they live in the U.S., but their parents are here, uh, managed to get out of the country. So uh, I'll be having dinner with them later. So it's it's um, it's really uh, it's really been a very um, challenging thing for all of the folks there, and and I think it's it's remarkable how so many people have come together to help um, in a time like this. So tell me, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your company. You do enterprise work. You also have your startup studio. Um, you know, where are the big opportunities? I would think there'd be a lot of things in healthcare that you're seeing that are pretty exciting. Uh, what are some of the other sort of big opportunities for the kind of services that you have that you're starting to see? The two big industries that we get most excited about and I think are really starting to finally form shape is the Internet of Things space, the IoT yeah. space, uh, and healthcare mixed with mobile devices, right? We haven't really seen true revolutionary mobile device applications in healthcare uh, because of the restrictions and because they're 10 years behind the times. Same with manufacturing, right? Same with uh, real estate. Like those industries are finally catching up to this mobile craze. And with IoT specifically, there's so much opportunity now to capture. Like there's data warehouses that you can just store for cheap. And then from there, you can start doing connections between Bluetooth devices, mobile devices, connecting to your washing machine, connecting to baby monitors, you know, cameras are now being more prevalent in all these different houses. So IoT has really been a big hub and a big opportunity for us, especially when we couple that with machine learning. Uh, we're really starting to find some great opportunities of cool problems that people are trying to solve that are changing the betterment of, of humankind. You know, the, the healthcare one and the mobile devices, I think that's really interesting. Uh, about five years ago, my husband and I uh, we're, we're, we were on sabbatical together, so we were going to take an extensive sailing trip on our, we had a 45-foot sailboat at the time. We're now, we now have a, a, a powerboat. But anyway, uh, <laughs> our doctor at the time um, had a lot of different ideas. Some of them were, uh, you know, were had come to fruition, but many of them haven't for us to be able to connect with him directly and ways that we could actually stay on top of our healthcare, um, you know, things like him actually being able to to listen to our heart through, you know, a, a device attached to a smartphone, and and I'm sure a, a lot more of that I think could make a big difference in the world, especially in places where healthcare is not as readily available. You know, there's not an urgent care maybe on the block um, yeah. for people. So I, I could see some really cool applications there. Yeah, it, it extends further. And, you know, I wish there was more money involved in this, but the third world countries too, uh, they have mobile phones. They skipped over the yes. computer phase completely, right? They never had computers, but they're having mobile phones for the first time. And now these mobile phones are starting to get connected to the internet for the first time. And they've never had healthcare. 
but through the course of these applications, maybe we can start providing opportunities, not just for Americans, you know, that, to get their healthcare, but also for people to experience healthcare for the first time, to see rashes, to see broken ankles, to see all of these different, you know, medications and diseases that people have and being able to ship them the right medication to provide for them of whatever they might have at that time, you know, and that's where I do see a lot of innovation. It's just finding the funding for that to hire somebody like us to build that application is, is generally the challenge. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that 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 whole like the you know sort of skipping uh, a lot of what we went through to get to mobile um, in a lot of those countries. We had some students that were doing some research for a project and uh, in Africa, and they found that they found that if they could connect to people through mobile devices, that was I mean through their phones, that was the way to do it. And uh, it's a really it was a really unique concept. I won't go into it. But they would only have known that if they had had by they only knew that by going there and spending time and and understanding that. But I think that's a really interesting concept. So I have really enjoyed our conversation. I know there's a lot more that we could be talking about, but I before we wrap up, I'd really love to hear a little bit more. You talked about um, failure and wanting entrepreneurs who have have experienced some failure. So I just have to ask, along along your path uh, this past 11 years, um, do you have something you might share with our audience, um, you know, about some of the challenges and failures uh, and, and, and really the way that you were able to continue to execute past failure and, uh, and, and, you know, some words of advice about that. Sure. When I do talk to, you know, 20 year olds at college or people that are coming out of high school and looking for entrepreneurship, I, I provide them the advice that the best thing you can do for yourself at an early age is to be an apprentice for somebody doing something great. And why that's so valuable is because the reason why I'm a good CEO or I think I'm a good CEO or people think I'm a good CEO is because I've watched so many people that managed me fail and treat me horribly, tell me I did wrong things. And I've learned from that failure or their failures towards me, how not to treat others. Um, and being an apprentice for somebody great, especially in an industry that you find very enjoyable, allows you to test the waters and see what you can get away with. See if you can come up with new ideas. See if you can, you know, break the mold of whatever process they're doing today and convince your boss to like test the grounds and do something different. Um, but when you're in a big company, even if that fails, you're still getting a W-2 check at the end of the day. So your appetite for risk doesn't really affect the, the learning experience that you can go through for failure. Start a company and you fail that, you're out of money, you're probably not going to dinner with your friends. You know, at age 20 or 21, that's probably like the time where you're trying to find a significant other. You're missing out on all those experiences because you're focused solely on providing financial support for yourself. Whereas if you do it inside of a company, you really are not risking yourself. You're just risking a few years in a company that you probably won't work for in the future anyways. So my advice to a lot of young people is find an industry or find something you love to do and niche it down as much as you want. Like if you love dogs, find dog toys. If you like dog toys, find squeaking dog toys. Then go work for that company and like build the best squeaky dog toy you ever can with somebody else that knows what they're doing and then go off and build your squeaky dog toy, right? It's just way better for your, you know, your well-being and, and growth as a human. Because I think the other challenge that I run into, at least when I, I train entrepreneurs, is they want the big success early. You know, they want the million dollar company, they want the Tesla and they want all that. 
And to get there, it takes 10 years, even for the people you see that have those Tesla. Not an overnight success. And to experience that as an apprentice, you start realizing that your boss, whether he's successful or not, it took him a long time to get there. And so growing into that, I think, is one of the most important lessons I can teach or demonstrate from the position I'm in now. Yeah. So if I'm, what I'm hearing is, you know, if you do have that, make that opportunity to work for somebody and, and also pay attention and ask a lot of questions, right. And and yep. try to find out where they failed. And um, so, so you don't have to, it's kind of like when you're a kid, you don't have to touch the stove <laughs> to, to, you know, to get burned. Uh, you see that somebody else's scars and they're willing to share that. And, you know, that's the thing I've found most entrepreneurs are really willing to share those scars, those stories of their failures and how they overcame them, because sometimes that's that's what really made them who they are and made their business what it's become. So I want to congratulate you. You you and and your partner built a really what sounds like a really great company. What I saw when I did the research, it it looked like, uh, you know, you're on a great trajectory. Second year on Inc. 5000 list of five fastest growing companies, a lot of really great accolades. And I know a lot of great products that are coming out of of your your company. So congratulations on that. Thanks for sharing your story. If any of our entrepreneurs would like to um, find out more about what you do, maybe they see themselves as a good candidate for your company, or maybe even just want to connect with you uh, to learn a little bit more, how can they do that? Yeah, so the best place to connect with me is Twitter, I'm at Andrew Amen. Uh, and so that's where I do a lot of DMs and meet people and then set up, I have morning walk calls with individuals from Twitter typically. Um, but we're also on LinkedIn. The website is www.923, spelled out in letters, uh, .co. Uh, so we haven't bought the .com yet. It's pretty expensive. But .co is, is, is ours and you can find us on LinkedIn. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a delight and and uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, wish you and your company all the success uh, going forward and, and good luck to all of your Ukrainian employees. And, uh, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing great things continue about your company. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was a pleasure being here and thank you for all the questions today and uh, thank you for the insights. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.